0: Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. In this episode, we're heading to the world's most famous music festival, Woodstock. This pivotal moment in cultural history was held in the summer of 1969. And more than 50 years later, it still has a mesmeric hold over our imaginations. At the time, though, it was an unlikely success. With the help of special guest Joel McCower, we go behind the scenes. Joel is a journalist by training and the author of Woodstock, the Oral History, which is available in paper form and on audiobook through Audible. It's mid-afternoon on August 16th, on a farm in upstate New York. A young Carlos Santana and his band are playing their closing number, Soul Sacrifice. In front of them there's a crowd of thousands, many clapping in time to the rhythm of congas and dancing in a sea of mud. Most of the festival-goers have long hair, and they're sporting headbands, flowers, large sunglasses, blue jeans and bright clothes. There's also plenty of tie-dye, feathers and beads. It's been raining on and off all weekend, but the stage is open air and the performers look like they're having the time of their lives. In fact, Carlos Santana is still under the influence of psilocybin. He says afterwards that during his set... He was hallucinating, imagining his guitar had become a snake, but watching him play, he's still nothing less than phenomenal. Thanks to the festival, Santana and his fusion of rock, jazz, blues and Latin American music will become a household name. 1960s America is a tumultuous place. Society is changing, and as people embrace new ideas, new music, and new technology, activists work towards racial and gender equality. Politically, the Vietnam War, the Cold War, and the fear of communism are still at the forefront of public consciousness, and a certain element of society is still conventional, and highly nationalistic. But the hippie movement is also gathering momentum. Many young baby boomers are rebelling against the conventions of the generations that went before in favour of alternative lifestyles built around peace, love and harmony. Born in the late 1940s and 1950s, the boomers have never experienced the hardship of the Great Depression and they're also the first generation in 50 years not to live through a world war. Life is looking bright and full of possibility. Joel, our guest, tells us about the mood in the years leading up to the Woodstock Festival.
1: Woodstock took place in really one of the most interesting periods of history. In 1969, we had the Vietnam War going on. We had the Civil Rights Movement. We had political turmoil. Um, we had the counterculture revolution, the hippies, uh, the marijuana weed culture was was starting to come into the fore, and um, it was a cultural revolution, a political revolution, uh, music, uh, everything was happening then, and um, so in in many ways, you know, Woodstock was a reflection of all of that: the the p- politics, the culture, the music, certainly. Um, of the time and just the sensibilities so it was a it was a time that was filled with chaos it was a time that was filled with uh, a lot of uh just growing pains on the part of this new generation the the baby boomers as they would come to be called or actually later the woodstock generation uh they were we were coming into our own we were starting to uh you know, become earners and figuring out, you know, how capitalistic are we really uh, compared to the, the rhetoric um, and, and how do we want to live this world The the term appropriate technology, we would now call clean tech or climate tech or any number of other things or just technology was, was coming to the fore, the whole earth catalog, which was a major bestseller of alternative, it was called appropriate technology at the time. Uh, Hit the bookstores. It was teaching people who hadn't necessarily been back to the land types about living closer to the land. Whether it was uh, making your own stuff or fixing your own stuff or buying in bulk and things that now you know are are part of what we would call sustainability. So it was it was a lot going on, and and as I said, Woodstock really was uh, for in both good ways and not so good ways a reflection of that.
0: The early 60s sees a resurgence in the popularity of traditional folk music, with artists like Joan Baez, originally known for her covers of folk songs, becoming very popular. Baez and other singer-songwriters like Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin and Joni Mitchell also play around with genres, writing their own music infused with folk, rock, jazz and the blues. This is also the age where the electric guitar becomes more mainstream with the rise of musicians like guitar virtuoso Jimi Hendrix and psychedelic rock becomes popular on both sides of the Atlantic. There's more diversity and a greater sense of freedom in music than there has been in a long time. Two years prior to Woodstock, another music festival, The Summer of Love, is held outside San Francisco, and it's then that the city's flower children hit the headlines and really come to public attention. About 100,000 people attend the event and take learnings from it back to their hometowns and countries. Woodstock, however, has become the most famous music festival of the era. Our guest discusses its unlikely beginnings.
1: Woodstock was organized by four young men uh, in their early 20s. Two of them were sort of of the music business, or one was in the music business, the other was sort of ran a head shop down in Florida and was also started managing some bands. Uh, so Michael Lang, who is best known now as the organizer of, of Woodstock, uh, really was his brainchild, along with Artie Kornfeld, who was at the time, a young AR man at Columbia Records Artist Repertoire. So he was in charge of some groups. He had also written a number of hits for other groups. And they teamed up with uh, two other men, also in their early mid 20s, uh, named uh, John Roberts and Joel Rosenman. Um, John Roberts uh, had inherited money from his family. It was the Block Drug Company. Uh, most people don't know, but, um, but Woodstock was basically funded by Polydent. The uh, denture uh, adhesive uh, product and a number of other things, over-the-counter drugs made by Block Drug, and his friend Joel Rosenman. Uh, they uh, found each other. They one was friends with the other's brother, and they started to go into business. Uh, and they wanted to be writers, and they decided they wanted to write a sitcom about two guys with money who were trying to start business. So they they put uh, an ad in the in the Wall Street Journal. The big newspaper of the uh, of the of till today that said young men with unlimited capital looking for interesting and legitimate business ideas and the hope was they'd get all these business plans and that would be the basis for the writing the scripts for the sitcom and they got thousands of them i think seven thousand in very little time and started wading through them and they found a couple that were interesting and they ended up building a recording studio in midtown manhattan and that got the attention of of the two music guys, Artie and, and Michael, and uh, who wanted to build a recording studio in the town of Woodstock, uh, hundred or two hundred miles north of of Woodstock and at the, of, of New York City. And at the time, that's where Bob Dylan lived, and Janis Joplin, and the, the band, and a number of others. And they thought that having this this uh, recording studio up in the in the piney woods would be chill and and, and a great place for these groups to want to be, rather than the big big city. Joel and John weren't that interested in building another recording studio, but they were interested in these guys because these guys, they said, well, you know, if you really know all these musicians, as they claimed they did, let's have a big music event. And the proceeds from the event will go to fund the recording studio. So that was how it happened. And it was uh, the first venue they had was not anywhere near Woodstock. It was in a couple counties away in a town of Wallkill, horrible name, Wallkill, New York. and. Uh, they started, you know, putting this team together and starting to, you know, they found this uh, this uh, site that was going to be a, an industrial park, uh, one, of, one of the great oxymorons in the world. For and in the meantime, this guy was going to let them use this festival. And then they started to build this out, and the townspeople in Wallkill started seeing all these hippies and these, you know, barefoot women with not wearing, you know, undergarments and all this stuff, and. And they got really freaked out about this. And they realized that this, what sounded like a folk festival was really going to be something much more. So basically, they pulled their permit with five weeks to go, about 35 days before this thing was supposed to take place. And these guys were, you know, as we say, up a tree and they, they uh, scrambled and they uh, rented helicopters and flew all over the, the region looking for the right piece of land. And they found this farm. Owned by this dairy farmer Max Yasgur, that was perfect, and Max had been following because the because that, that the plight of this festival had been the front page news up there for for weeks. Uh, he had let the Mr. Yasgur had let the farm be used for Boy Scout jamborees and other things. So he you know he decided to let them use it. He also got paid a lot of money for this, so it wasn't just a philanthropic thing. Um, And that's how they found what became known as Yasgur's Farm. And um, actually, it was known as Yasgur's Farm before that. Uh, And uh, and it all started from there.
0: Yasgur's 600-acre dairy farm in upstate New York has gone down in history as an almost mythical place. Though in many ways, farmer Max Yasgur is everything the festival goers were rebelling against. He's a 49-year-old Republican voter who supports the Vietnam War. His son once says that, due to wet weather, it's been a bad year for hay production, so hosting the music event is a way to offset the loss. But Yaska was also a genuine believer in free speech, and when questioned about Woodstock, he speaks about the importance of closing the gap between generations. Here he is, talking to the crowd.
2: I'm a farmer. I don't know... I don't know how to speak to 20 people at one time, let alone a crowd like this. But I think you people have proven something to the world. Not only to Town of Bethel or Sullivan County or New York State, you've proven something to the world. This is the largest group of people ever assembled in one place. We have had no idea that there would be this size group. And because of that, you've had quite a few inconveniences as far as water and food and so forth. Your producers have done a mammoth job to see that you're taken care of. They enjoy a vote of thanks. But above that, the important thing that you've proven to the world is that a half a million kids, and I call you kids because I have children older than you are, a half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music. And have nothing but fun and music. And I, God bless you for it.
0: Not everyone is as broad-minded as Yazger, And from the start, many of his neighbours are opposed to the event. They put up signs saying, Stop Max's Hippie Festival. And, Don't buy Yaska's milk. Yazger himself is reportedly threatened with arson, but he's not intimidated. Woodstock goes ahead anyway, and Yazger welcomes the hippies, offering them cheap or free food and drink. This also gets him on the wrong side of other people in the community, who've been trying to make a quick buck by selling the festival goers bottled water. Yasgur, like everyone else, is expecting about 50,000 people to attend. But the guests keep on arriving until the audience numbers more than 400,000 people. Our guest, Joel, discusses how the chaos of the music festival led to a stronger community spirit.
1: You know, by all measures, Woodstock should have been a disaster you know, they'd been legally barred from their location just a month or so before when it was scheduled to to, to run, they had to regroup and find the farm. Uh, in their haste, they they didn't have enough time to plan for a lot of the facilities and amenities, uh, some of which just went away, like the gates and fences. Um, and the, the overflow crowd showed up earlier. Obviously, they didn't know how many people to expect, probably no more than 100,000. And they had probably 400,000 people show up. Joni Mitchell rounded, I mean, yeah, in her song, rounded that up to half a million strong. I think that was a little bit hyperbolic. The crowds caused traffic jams that paralyzed miles and miles of highways, uh, making it really hard for to bring in supplies, let alone emergency vehicles, and of course, the bands themselves. Um, it, it was really hard to evacuate the ill and the, the injured and the, the, the National Guard and the U.S. Army got involved. Uh, just uh, from a logistics standpoint, the whole community came together. Uh, you know, to make you know, there, there, there was this uh, these headlines that hungry hippies on Yasgur's farm, or there was a famous uh, uh, headline in the New York Daily News: "Hippies Mired in Sea of Mud." And so the whole community came together. The churches came together. They they found every. Uh, egg supplier in the region and it's a rural agricultural region to make hard-boiled eggs because there were these sanitized little packets of protein they could ship in. I mean, it was really they, they, it was like the aftermath of a of an earthquake or a tornado. Um, and it began as an exercise in hip capitalism, but lost millions and millions of dollars. And then it rained and rained. And the grounds were already muddy just from a typical weeks of summer showers. And you find up in, in upstate New York and it turned to muck as the skies kept opening and often violently during the festival weekend. Most of the people who came there, city kids who weren't adequately prepared for that, let, let alone to camp out for three days uh, on the grounds. They didn't have their meds. They didn't have whatever. And of course, they were ingesting all kinds of things uh, from alcohol to LSD and, and, and everything in between. And yet Woodstock wasn't a disaster. Uh, It was actually uh, far from it. There was this uh, just uh, immeasurable joy in humanity and and heroics. Uh, People there stepped up to help everyone else. Uh, As I said, the community chipped in. Um, And, uh, you know, doctors helped people who were having everything from cut feet to bad trips. the hog farm, even Abby Hoffman and the, and the radical left yippies uh, who had come there to to protest really chipped in in a lot of great ways. So it, it really, in, in some ways, uh, you know, sort of ironic, particularly of the time with the Vietnam War going on, that a lot of those involved in Woodstock likened it to having been through a war. But that's kind of what it was like.
0: Artists who perform over the three days at Woodstock include Janis Joplin, Santana, Ravi Shankar, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Grateful Dead, The Who and Creedence Clearwater Revival. Some artists will become famous after performing at the festival, while others will fade into obscurity. Not everyone invited decides to attend. Bob Dylan turns the festival down though it's an electrifying atmosphere there's no denying that the setup is less than ideal in fact many bands looking back remember how dangerous it was our guest joel talks now about the performers and the conditions at the festival
1: despite the fact that these young men with unlimited capital or the music business were trying to really winging it here and throwing this together they managed to line up some of the best bands of the time uh, Richie Havens, the the, the folk singer, uh, uh, a number of, you know, Arlo Guthrie, certainly Joan Baez, country Joe McDonald, Santana, uh, you know, some of the folks that came and went, the incredible string band, I don't think most people have heard of since then, but, or Mountain, another one, but the Grateful Dead, Creedence Clearwater Revival, The Who, Janis Joplin, the Jefferson Airplane, Joe Cocker. I mean, it's it's quite an impressive list. Uh, and then, of course, Jimi Hendrix, who closed the thing uh, on Monday morning. Um, and, you know, some of the bands, um, you know, didn't, you know, it was sort of chaotic. They didn't know exactly when they were going to play. The conditions were terrible. Richie Havens was not supposed to be the to open it, but he was the only one there who had managed to get through traffic. Uh, his two his two band uh, mates uh, weren't there. So he went on solo first. Um uh, played everything he he'd ever knew. And they kept saying, no, keep, keep going. And he created on the spot, the uh, song called freedom, which uh, was one of his best known songs. He just created, it. he was inspired by this crowd, but they all said that it was so scary to, first of all, to fly in on helicopters, which is how they were bringing people in because the traffic was blocked. There was this, there were so many people coming to Yazgrew's farm that there was, you could not get there. And so they couldn't get the bands. And they said, flying in in these little helicopters was just sort of like a military mission. And, um, and, and this, they never, none of them had ever seen any crowds that big and it kind of freaked them out. And then the conditions were really bad too. I mean, uh, there the stage went together at the last minute. They hadn't been able to bury a lot of the cables. Of course it rained and poured and they were, there was, you could, there were actually shocks coming through some of the stage cables and it, it was very dangerous. The the light towers uh, if you've seen the movie, uh, were were shaking in the fierce winds, and they they had them tied down, but still people were climbing on them, and so they were less than stable. It it really uh, was quite chaotic. Uh, Jerry Garcia was was famous for saying, "We were terrible at Woodstock." Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know Crosby, Stills, Nash playing with Neil Young for the very first time, or the second time, I think ever, uh, certainly in the biggest venue. Uh, arguably, made their career as did Joe Cocker, as did Country Joe McDonald. Uh, they played this, you know, set that really put them on the map. If not at the festival, then in the movie about the festival.
0: Often overlooked elements of any large festival are safety and security. Considering the number of people that turn up, Woodstock goes fairly smoothly. There are plenty of accidental overdoses but relatively few people need serious medical attention. Sadly, there are two deaths during the weekend, one drug-related and the other an accident. There are also reports of two babies being born, one in the traffic jam and the other in a nearby hospital after a pregnant woman was airlifted from the farm. However, these might be apocryphal stories. For years, historians have searched far and wide for the Woodstock babies without any luck. Here's Joel discussing security at the festival, which is worthy of a story on its own.
1: One of the questions the producers were wondering is how do you police something like that you know what do you do? people are going to want to come in for free they're going to get into fights they're going to, things are going to happen. And so they tried a number of things. But one of the main things they did is they hired a guy named Wesley Pomeroy, uh, who was 50 years old at the time. Ancient. He had a crew cut. He worked for the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, but he had also been a, a, a cop and a highway patrolman and had done a number of things and and had this very enlightened uh, way of thinking about people. So, for example. Uh, when they heard that the Hell's Angels were on their way up uh, to come to Woodstock en masse, uh, and they were saying, "Oh, well, you know that that's not going to end well." They met met them when they all showed up. They hired them as messengers and sent them off in fifty different directions to be swallowed up in the crowd, never to be heard from again. Uh, they hired uh, some hundreds of New York City off-duty police. But except they didn't put them in police uniforms, they put them in, in nylon jackets that said peace on the back. In fact, they were called please officers, P-L-E-A-S-E, please officers, uh, and and little pith helmets, and uh, no weapons, no badges, no anything. But they were just there to help. Uh, and then they hired um, the, a commune called the Hog Farm, led by a former stand-up comedian named Wavy Gravy, uh, who was also seen in the movie as one of the uh, the MCs of Woodstock, and they had—they uh, uh, were specifically there to help people camp out in the woods and build fires, but not too big a fire, and and deal with with uh, trip tents and things like that. And so that was also part of the security of how do we keep people safe? How do we we keep them peaceful, particularly in this you know unprecedented uh, mass of humans? Um, and and it all seemed to work. And then, of course, there were no gates and fences. And so, you know, and yet people still wanted to sneak in. Oh, the, one of the other ideas was um, uh, if for people, if assuming there was gates and fences, let's dig a hole under the fence and the people who have to break in, let's just usher them through the hole and say, OK, come this way and just, you know, just marginalize them and, and let them in and not fight them. It was really enlightened security of the time. And, uh, hey, we should be doing more of that now.
0: By the time Jimi Hendrix closes Woodstock on the Monday with a wailing electric rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner, Yazger's farm looks like a disaster zone. Unfortunately, Max Yazger never really lives it down. He's sued by his neighbours for thousands of dollars, and he in turn receives a settlement from the organisers. He doesn't dabble in entertainment again. In 1970, he tells journalists he's back to running a dairy farm, but he's already become a counterculture legend. When he passes away in 1973, he even receives an obituary in Rolling Stone magazine, which is highly unusual for a non musician. The critically acclaimed documentary Woodstock is released in 1970 and it helps to cement the festival's popular image as a hopeful, exuberant musical celebration. This image lives on in popular imagination and in movies, books, tribute concerts and plays. As Joel tells us, Woodstock probably wasn't the best music festival out there, but no other music festivals have really managed to approach its huge cultural significance. Here he discusses how Woodstock ultimately stacks up and why it's proved impossible to recreate.
1: Musically, Woodstock is maybe a footnote in the history of, of rock and roll of the era. It certainly wasn't the first music festival. There had been many before that, and it definitely was not the last, and it probably wasn't the best. Uh, but, and in fact, a lot of the people I interviewed for, the, for, for my oral history. Um, barely remember the music. You know, they knew the music was there, and it kept everybody engaged, and it was a rallying thing. But they don't remember a lot of things. People who were there at the very end remember vividly uh, Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner, and people have moments that they remember. Sha Na the sort of '60s throwback band, uh, uh, you know, doing their their stuff, or, or Crosby, Stills, and Nash, or whoever it was. But it, it wasn't. About the music, uh, it really wasn't, and and I think a lot of people, you know, think that they look at Woodstock and that was the great concert of that era. Actually, it probably wasn't. In the nearly fifty-five years since the original Woodstock, people have been trying to recreate it some way or another. There actually were a couple of Woodstocks in in uh, 1989, 19, for the twentieth anniversary, nineteen ninety-four for the twenty-fifth, and they were anywhere from from not that interesting to actually pretty bad. Um, and, you know, the question is, you know, can there ever be another Woodstock? No, oh, and there shouldn't be uh, any more. You couldn't rec- recreate that moment any more than you could put four guys together with uh, three guitars and drums and call them the Beatles. And, you know, it's just, it's it was unique to that moment and, and those people in that circumstance. Uh, and I think that's, you know, uh, we have to sort of leave it there. I mean, Woodstock, in, in many ways, is a reflection of who we were in 1969, the, the politics, the music, the sens- cultural sensitivities, everything else, uh, the humanity. But it really, uh, it's not something to be repeated. Uh, you know, there have been other great concerts since then, uh, music festivals and, that continue to this day. There's, you know, Burning Man and every... September in the Nevada Desert here in the United States, and you know, things all over the world. And and I think those are the the offspring of Woodstock. But like most offspring, they've they've found their own path.
0: Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Special thanks to our guest, Joel McAwa. Joel is a journalist by training and the author of Woodstock: The Oral History. His book is available in paper form and can also be found on Audible. It includes accounts of the festival from not only the performers and festival goers, but also people from the Bethel community. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song when we discuss the biggest political scandal of the 70s, Watergate, the downfall of President Richard Nixon. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZPods, that's N-Z-P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us to share this project with more listeners, so please do share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.